Forever ago, we're recording on Thursday afternoon, but Penn State wrapped up a 9-3 and regular season with a win over Maryland on Saturday at Beaver Stadium on Senior Day. 38-3, to that was probably Penn State's best performance uh, probably since the first four weeks of the season. Um, Penn State got on the board, ran it up, um, did a really good job stopping Maryland's rush attack. We're going to talk a, bit, a little bit about the Maryland game, probably not too much. We're going to talk about the, the, the wrapping up the season, all Big Ten teams, got a transfer in there, recruiting, all that kind of stuff. But this is the Lions 24-7 podcast. I welcome back Tyler Donahue. Tyler, Penn State 9-3, and not exactly where they wanted to be, but at the end, they finished strong. Yeah, Penn State is not in Indianapolis this weekend for the Big Ten Championship. I think that's where the expectation is for this program now on an annual basis. That's the way James Franklin talks about this team's ambitions, and that's the way they're kind of stocking this roster with talent to make those kind of runs. So 9-3, and three, I would say, falls you know short of where you thought this team could get. I was more on the positive scenario of things playing out when we made our picks back in August. I had the team going 11-1. and one. I envisioned a more efficient offense throughout the uh, year. Um, and I you know, obviously thought Trace McSorley w- was not going to get banged up and, and not have his issues in the passing game as well. So, you know, 11-1 was, was a little far-reaching, far-reaching, but I will say going into a bowl game, this team has a chance to pick up its 10th win. Uh, we've heard a lot about how important that is to, to Franklin, to these players. It will be the first time in Penn State history to do that in three straight years. I'm sorry, in Penn State's Big Ten history to do that in three straight years, double-digit victories. It will be the first time for the program in general since 1980 to 1982. Um, so, you know, I think that's attainable, and they're going to have to do that by going through what we think will be a ranked SEC opponent. Uh, so, Ten and three to me, while it is not what dreams are made of for Penn State football fans, I think it does kind of answer the bell and keep momentum moving in the right direction. Yeah, I'd say good enough is the way that I would label it. Uh, you know, we were talking about predictions, and earlier in the season we put up some lofty ones, and I think we thought that Trace McSorley could account for more wins on his own to sort of make up. We knew we knew defense up the middle was going to be an issue early. We knew that the the receivers were talented, but really had not done anything to this point. Um, but uh, yeah, I think that the, we kind of expected, and, and I, I don't want to sound like I'm banging on Trace because he's had a phenomenal career and co- and closed it really well against Maryland last weekend, but. I think we just expected a little bit more. I don't know that that's uh, you know a criticism of him, but it's uh, he. I don't think he played up to to his capability, his expectation for himself. And I think uh, you know no, no doubt that he was banged up after that Ohio State game and it really cost him. Right now that Michigan State game is is the one that bites them because this is a, a New Year's Six day lo- or excuse me, a New Year's Six bowl lock if they don't lose to Michigan State. Now they're sort of teetering on the edge waiting for everything else to happen. I mean some crazy things happened last week. I mean Ohio State, we, we knew they had the talent, we knew they had the ability but they really went out and uh, you know at home, put it to Michigan and changed that whole scenario and sort of in a trickle down effect change where Penn State's probably going to be looking in January 1st. You make a great point. That Michigan State game is is the one that you're just going to always scratch your head when you look at this season. You know, the one-point loss to Ohio State, I know they blew the late lead, but this is a Buckeyes team, once again, another year under Urban Meyer, knocking on the door of a college football playoff inclusion. Um, and, and, and the Michigan loss was what it was. Look, you, you ran into a team that was playing very well, 
probably Penn State uh, and Trace McSorley, that offense at their worst this season. But Michigan State game, though, coming off of a bye week, uh, and, and it looks worse as the season goes on because Michigan, you know, they lost by 20. They put up six points against Ohio State. They put up seven points in a loss to Michigan. They lost 9-6 to six to Nebraska in their second-to-last game. So it's not like this Michigan State team went on and, and looked great the rest of the way. So that's the one that when you're, when you're trying to figure out all the dynamics of this bowl game and who needs to lose for Penn State to maybe take a bump up, that conversation is a lot more clear probably if you're sitting at 10-2, and two, waiting to see how things shake out. Probably feel pretty secure about heading to you know maybe a, a Fiesta Bowl or a Peach Bowl in, in, in December. And Michigan State, you know, we have to note that they lost Felton Davis right after he dominated Penn State. So that's a, a tough break for them, but they're sort of in disarray right now uh, heading into the bowl season. Well, before you get to 10-3, and three, you get to 9-3. and three. Penn State did so with a 38-3 to three sort of shellacking of Maryland. This one really was never close. Uh, Maryland you know, put up the big rushing numbers against Ohio State the week before. I think you could probably make a fair argument that they're probably an emotionally exhausted team, although they were playing for a bowl game. But Penn State did what they had to do. The offense came out. They looked efficient. They looked good. 550, excuse me, 565 yards of total offense committed to running the football, which is a thing that we had, uh, I think, uh, criticized the team with because they've been they've been so reliant on the pass the last couple of years. And I thought they thought that they could do that in times this year. Just kind of got away from the running game. Miles Sanders had a, a big game until that fumble. Ricky Slade came back. Penn State in total, 44 carries, 310 yards, seven yards per carry which if you watch Maryland last week, if you threw out those numbers, you would think that the Terps would be the team to, to, to put up numbers like that. So it's been a, um, it, it was sort of a, a flip the script, senior day moment type thing. And, you know, we said that that had the possibility of happening, but, you know, you hadn't seen it from this offense in the last month or two of the season and uh, really came out of nowhere. It was a good time to happen. Yeah. And I think, I think with this performance, you know, it, I think it's important for the fans and for Trace McSorley that, that they were able to share that moment. You know, three touchdowns, almost 300 total yards. He, he ran the ball well. Um, he, he looked like he was having fun. Clearly was savoring every moment out there. And I think because of how this season has played out and the clunker that was put up on home turf against Michigan State, um, you know, and the injury he suffered on home turf against Iowa, you know, Wisconsin, it was an efficient day. It wasn't an electric kind of day. You saw some vintage Trace McSorley in this one, and I think that was great. Fans who stuck around, it was crappy weather. Uh, it was a blowout win for Penn State. Those who stuck around and you know got a chance to really take it all in with Trace, with some of those fifth-year seniors. They made that lap around the stadium. We've talked a lot about how important that recruiting class was. Uh, but aside from McSorley, who, again, I thought played his best football in quite some time, uh, Miles Sanders, you know, 128 rushing yards. But the fumble, uh, you know, that was one of the first things he was asked about after the game. It's going to be kind of the bugaboo, I think, when, when people look at his body of work as a first-year starter, um, assuming he's back in the fold next year as a senior. It's something that's going to be talked about a lot during the offseason. It's probably the one thing that he's really going to need to address. I think everything else, you look at the way he's progressed as a receiver, uh, as, as a guy who can find the holes and hit them without without a, you know, without bouncing outside or trying to do something crazy. He's found he's been an efficient runner, so I think that's the main thing. Uh, but the takeaway here is the defense again. You know, I mentioned 20 points allowed in the last three games of, of the Big Ten schedule. Not your best three opponents, but you play who's in front of you, and this defense right now is dominating just about everybody who's in front of them. I think it's 26 tackles for loss the last two weeks of the season. Uh, they didn't force any fumbles against Maryland, I don't believe, but they forced seven fumbles, uh, so seven turnovers in the two games prior. So 
uh, you know, down the stretch, this defense, they're not going to lose a whole lot. They're going to lose some leadership, uh, some accountability from some of the older guys. But you look who's coming back in 2019. Uh, I think there are some seriously legitimate reasons to think that this could be uh, in the mix for the best defense in the Big Ten in 2019 based on what we saw down the stretch here. All the pieces are in place. I mean, you look you look across the defense and you're going to lose Koa Farmer as a starter. You're going to lose Nick Scott as a starter. Amani Oriware as a starter. So a lot of minutes from those guys. And, and you're probably going to lose, lose Sharif Miller too to the draft. I don't think that's a, a secret or anything like that. Um, so, But you've got guys to, to slot in there. Yitor Gross Matos played as well as anybody over the second half of the season. Probably your defensive MVP. Um, he was first team all Big Ten, which we'll get into in a minute. But, uh, I mean, he was fantastic. You've got options at linebacker. You talk about Farmer not being there anymore. I mean, he was more or less supplanted by Micah Parsons, who led the team in tackles. And some interesting battles to, to, to still to happen at safety, which we're going to talk about a little bit uh, as well. But, uh, yeah, that defense can be very good. The offense, you, you look at the other side, I think a lot of it depends on, on Miles Sanders' decision. I, know I think he does have a decision in front of him, and it's a tougher one than I think a lot of people will give him credit for. But uh, you're getting a lot back. You want those offensive lines and back you want uh you know you you want to think that tommy stevens can take the ball and go with it but they 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 certainly have the talent to make something work in 2019 let's put it this way i mean my outlook for the season going in i think that was shared by a lot of people who follow this team closely was that the offense was going to be very capable every single game give you a chance to win because of trace mcsorley because we anticipated we didn't know but we anticipated a guy like Jawan johnson or, or DeAndre Tompkins would take that step up at, at receiver. And we knew the other supporting pieces that were gathering, the offensive line. Um, that was the anticipation. Then you said, well, how, how long will it take the defense to, to catch up and get to that level? You know, I think the first taste in everybody's mouth with this defense was seeing them give up 21 unanswered points in the opener against App State in the fourth quarter. Amani comes up with the interception in overtime. They avoid the upset, but... You know, then you go to Pitt, and they give up more than 200 rushing yards in the first half of that game. The defense needed some time to catch up, but grand scheme of things, I think they're ahead of the curve. I think they're ahead of, of where you could have realistically kind of thought their progression could take them, and I think that's a lie. And if we're talking about some some glimpses of good things for 2019, how about Ricky Slade? You mentioned him and, and being part of that big rushing performance. Um, you know, this is a guy who we didn't see much of during the Big Ten schedule. Uh, in, in those final, in the last six games uh, before the Maryland contest in Big Ten play. Uh, we saw him, uh, actually I should say seven games, uh, we saw him get five touches total. Um, he got 10 touches in the first game against Illinois in the Big Ten schedule, went for 94 yards and two touchdowns, then seven games, got five total touches for 19 yards, no scores, 11 carries, 64 yards and two touchdowns against Maryland. So he bookended his Big Ten uh, experience with two two touchdown effort, didn't do much at all in between, so we didn't get a full sample size of Ricky, but I think some people... Uh, he got some oohs and ahs because of the way he can run. He had the spin move on the touchdown run. And that's some, those are some highlights that people are going to cling to. Uh, wh- whatever we see in the bowl, we'll see if, how much acting he gets. But I think people are going to cling to what they saw in Beaver Stadium last Saturday as a strong sign that Ricky Slade could be a special player at Penn State. 
I think the offseason is going to be huge for a guy like Slade. I mean, he still looks small out there, and he's never going to look big. I mean, he's not going to be a guy that carries 215 on that frame, but um, he's, he's slippery. He's quick. He That spin move was pretty ridiculous on the touchdown. So, you know, the, the potential certainly is there. You look at a guy that's probably in a similar situation as Jahan Dotson. You know, you know he's a really good football player. He's another guy that needs some time in the weight room, and he's going to get there. This the staff really, really high on those three, uh, the, those three freshman wide receivers. Of course, Shorter and George are going to get the red shirts. Dotson played, but yeah, really high on on that entire group right there. Um, you know, you look at this freshman class, and you started to see some things at the end. Fryermuth, of course, is, is is going to be really good. Parsons has flashed and, and done some good things. A guy that I look to is PJ Mustafer. By the end of the season, was giving them quality reps beside Antonio Shelton, who was better than I expected him to be at, at least in the end of uh, the end of the season. You're missing Fred Hansard and Ellison Jordan, but those guys stepped up and did what they had to do at a, at a spot that we knew that was going to be lacking and was going to be lacking in experience, lacking in talent behind Kevin Givens and, and Robert Windsor. They did a very good job. So excited to see what an offseason can do, especially for those freshmen, because there's there's a ton of talent in that class. I sure think that that by the end of the season, you had a legitimate two deep at defensive tackle. Uh, I don't think you had that for a lot of the season. You you had fluctuating parts. You had uh, Hansard, you know, starting the first game with Given suspended, and then you had him uh, injured midway through the season. Elson Jordan never healthy fully, and and, and obviously the CJ Thorpe experiment. We'll see what's next for that. But but his reps were limited. He, he, you couldn't trust him to be a number two defensive tackle by the end of the year. That's exactly what PJ Mustafer could be for this team alongside Shelton. They, they, they got good production out of the two starting spots with Givens and Windsor. So uh, I think linebacker defensive tackle were the two spots you said, you know, where are things going to be from week one to week 12? I think you saw progression in, in both areas, really. Uh, and and uh, you know how I feel about these freshman receivers. There's so much potential. Jahan Dotson, you know, gets a bit of a head start here in 2018, uh, getting the last three starts of the regular season. Uh, he'll be a sophomore next year. Uh, but it's a young receiver group. Excited to see how it all plays out. I think you can probably cast that net even wider go to the redshirt freshman I think we, we we're well aware of what KJ Hamler is all about expectations will be sky high for him in his third college year uh, but you know it's still limited stuff with, with Cam Sullivan Brown with Matt Kippenhammer with with Daniel George with Justin Shorter if you can get two or three of those guys to turn into legitimate consistent starter material for the next two three four years of their career uh, you know, this receiver group is going to be in great shape. Yeah, that transition is going over at a, at a few different positions. Receiver is one. Um, you know, I, I like the tight end room. I'm really curious to see where that goes because you've got Fryermuth, who's obviously the guy. Nick Bowers did some nice things down the stretch. He didn't have the catches or anything like that. But, you know, you've got a guy in there that can block now, and that that, that will uh, do some things for you in the future. And then you get Zach Kuntz, another, uh, another one of those guys that can use an offseason, can get bigger, stronger. I mean, we just saw him catch touchdown passes in, in, in practice uh, when we were there. I mean, he was just a guy that you'd always throw it up to. And it just, it's comical because this kid is six, seven and a half, and he looks even taller than that when he's out there with some other giants. And uh, it's, it's pretty, pretty funny to see. So anxious to see him in the spring um, to, to close the door on Maryland. Uh, you mentioned trace looked really good um, in terms of uh, health. I mean, he just, he looked better. He, he moved quicker. He was more efficient and, you know, Maryland's defense, 
defense did him some favors, no doubt about it. But, you know, he looked healthy. Jawan Johnson looked healthier than we've seen in a practice, in a game, in anything um, since probably late September, I think it was. Um, so, I mean, it's, uh, it was good to see him out there. He caught a couple nice balls down the field. So maybe he builds on that and gets back to where he can be with the potential that he has because everybody knows what potential he has, just really hasn't come through yet. So um, the, that's great. Yitoros Matos, fantastic player. Kevin Givens was really good as well. I don't think, uh, you know, I've been saying it all year that Givens and, and Sharif Miller, they're not coming through with the stats, but they're, they're having really good seasons. So um, that, that defensive line stepped up by the end of the season, clicking on all cylinders, getting the tackles for loss, getting the, the sacks, and Maryland's not good. I mean, let's, let's not sugarcoat it or anything like that, but I think Penn State showed a lot of growth. James Franklin said after the, after the, the game that Matt Canada's the guy at Pitt a couple of years ago. They ran all those jet sweeps. They tried to, to pressure the edge, and that's, a, that's something that really gave Penn State problems two years ago. They showed some growth. I mean, they completely shut that down. I mean, there, there was 12, I think, 12 tackles for loss uh, for a reason. Um, it was a really, really good effort by those guys in the edge. Yeah, and I think that's that's been an issue for this Penn State defense early in the season uh, was, you know, being able to handle that edge. And, and we, we saw it bite them in the first half against Pitt. We saw it bite them in the first half against Illinois. Uh, and that, that's just part of that maturation process for these guys who are first-year contributors. I, I think Etor is the great example of that. Everything is coming a lot more naturally to him. He doesn't have to think about where he needs to be. He's just there because he understands the flow. He understands his assignments. And I think you see that in a lot of spots on defense. Getting back very quickly to Juwan Johnson, you know, we talked about it in the press box Saturday, but it was great to see him flying around a little bit out there because he's a guy who was clearly hobbled with at least you know one kind of issue. We don't know what it was. He didn't look like he did against Maryland even before that injury he suffered against Indiana. You said maybe back to September. I'm with you. You know, that Ohio State game, I feel like, is the last time we got some flashes of what this kid is all about. You know, he's going into his fifth college year next year, be a redshirt senior. It's huge for him to end this season on a high note because I think in a lot of ways for Jawan, you know, he won't say it. I don't think the Penn State staff will say it, but it's got to feel a little bit like a lost season for him because we all thought, you know, this is a potential number one target in your passing game. And this is a guy who's being speculated as a potential first round draft pick in 2019. And here he is, you know, uh, you know, getting to the finish line, not much to show for it. But still, a nice statement performance for him, I think, for himself to, to show himself that he was able to get back out there, a beast, you know, be swifter, be a guy who can beat defensive backs, go make contested catches. And um, that's going to be important. I think overall, you look at the five pass targets. We talked about the freshman, Sean, but there's five guys who, who could be back next year who we're not really sure where they're at, uh, where they're going to be on the field, if they can win jobs back. you got Jawan Johnson and Brandon Polk, both going to be fifth-year players at receiver. And then you've got three tight ends. You know, Bowers did well for himself, kind of asserting himself as that number two guy. Um, but, you know, Kuntz is going to be on the rise. We didn't see very much of Danny Dalton at all, uh, especially in Big Ten play. And, and Jonathan, Jonathan Holland we saw less of than we did early in the season. So I think for Holland – for Bowers, uh, for for Dalton, and then for Polk and Johnson. It's going to be an interesting offseason as they get underway because, let's face it, there's a youth movement, and they're going to need to step up or they're going to have trouble getting on the football field. 
Absolutely. And it's uh, it's one of those things I talked to somebody earlier this week. Said, those, those freshmen are coming. I mean, those, you're not even talking or you're not even talking about Polk and Johnson. You're talking about Sullivan, Brown and Hippenhammer, just guys that are one class above. I mean, those, these are these are positions that are going to be up for grabs. And I know Penn State's got a lot of starters coming back, but you've got guys coming for those jobs. You've got guys uh, like Rasheed Walker. You got guys like Des Holmes on the offensive line. Mike Miranda stepped in with Michael Mennon out against Maryland, had a, a fantastic game as a run blocker. So um, there, there, there's certainly the talent has started to, to sort of seep through and peek through, and there's probably going to be guys left behind. Uh, speaking of guys uh, left behind, and I don't mean to lead in like that, Penn State got some news this week. Isaiah Humphreys, freshman safety legacy from Texas, is going to be transferring out. Uh, you know, this is a hit in numbers wise for for a position that's losing Nick Scott, of course. Um, but uh, it's going to be. It, it, I don't think in the grand scheme of things, it's not going to have a huge impact, but it's going to do some things with numbers. You look at safety in the spring. You've got Garrett Taylor coming back, of course. Jonathan Sutherland got time this year. Lamont Wade got time this year. John John Patrician uh, was a third-team guy this year. And, and you're not going to have Jaquan Brisk or the Juco kid in until the summer. So um, that's going to be something where in the spring you've got to get some guys to separate themselves. I think Taylor's got a spot no matter what. But Sutherland and Wade going to go at it in the spring, I think, for that other position. And you've got a chance to solidify yourself before Brisker gets there. They, they know what kind of player Brisker is. I mean, he goes back with some of these guys. Um, but uh, safety, it, it, it's a question mark numbers-wise. I think they have some talent there. Um, they, they they certainly have room to improve. I, I love Nick Scott. Great great kid. Uh, but, uh, you know, they've got room to improve with the two guys back there. And then does Tyler Rudolph switch out there? He's coming in in December. He's coming in as a corner. But still, he's got the size. I think a lot of people have projected him as a safety. So that, that possibility remains there as well. So uh, with Isaiah Humphreys leaving, you've got some questions in terms of uh, numbers. But uh, it should make for another intriguing position battle in the spring. Yeah, Humphreys is a guy who spent, you know, just about a full calendar year committed to Penn State before he signed with them last December. I think a lot of our listeners are, are aware that he is the son of a former Nittany Lions defensive back, Leonard Humphreys. Um, so there's a lot of personal ties to this program. Unfortunately, it did not work out for him. I did see Leonard Humphreys tweeting out um, on, on Wednesday night, support of his son, saying he made a, you know, a grown-up decision and, and what was best for him. So we wish Isaiah Humphreys well. Enjoyed speaking with him during his recruitment process. But I think it's very interesting, Sean, as we look at this 2018 recruiting class, 23 guys signed, 20 are, are, are in the mix still with this program. Obviously, I, I don't want to shortchange what Nana Asedu and Jordan Miner are doing behind the scenes, but because of their medical-related retirements, they're not going to be on the field. They're not going to be in game action for Penn State. Uh, Isaiah Humphreys will never play a game in an Nittany Lions uniform. So you signed 23 guys last winter, and now you've got 20 who can potentially still play in games for you. I think that's pretty interesting. And and you mentioned you know the the safety position. I think the defensive backfield in totality, it's it's a good time for them to bring in the class that they're about to bring in. They've got five guys there right now. There's versatility involved because you lose Minor because of the heart condition. You lose Humphreys to a transfer. And then last year, you know, in the final stretch towards signing day, uh, Aishim Young gets, you know, involved in, in off-field issues and, and, and court-related legal issues, and, and that costs him an opportunity to play Power 5 football coming out of high school, and he was a four-star safety in his own right. So it seems like the timing works out well, and, and obviously uh, there's also a method to the madness. Penn State wanted to ensure it was going to be bringing in an impressive defensive back class, but uh, it's coming at the right time when, when you add all those things together. When you add a guy like Jaquan Brisker, I think it, it sort of you know, bridges that gap pretty well. 
well. He's a guy that's going to have two years or three years to play too. Uh, defensive player of the year in his conference for Lackawanna is a physical kid, a big kid. He's about six one and a half, six two, two hundred pounds. He brings it as a safety. He's he's been a guy that's been able to play the run at Lackawanna. He's also gotten after the quarterback a little bit, handful of interceptions as well. So he sort of does it all. He's a, he's always had the talent. It was just a matter of him getting getting things straightened out. He was a, a player at Gateway, of course. Terry Smith coached there, and um, Penn State's got some connections there as well. So it's uh, it's one of those things where you can see Brisker coming in and making an, an impact right away. I expect him to push for a starting job, and we'll see what Sutherland and Wade have done in the spring to to sort of fend him off by the time he gets here. So really intrigued to see what happens there. Uh, speaking back to the class of 2018, uh, we, we checked in on all the freshmen this week on the site at Lions 24-7 with the, the red shirt tracker. 15 of those guys played, of course, 16 when you add uh, – Walk on Raf Cheka, who was the uh, kickoff specialist for Penn State this year, but 15 of these guys play. Isaiah Humphreys did not play, and now all of a sudden he's he's looking to transfer. You wonder if this new transfer rule sort of gives you a little bit more of a look into see where you're at as a, for the priority of the staff, where you're at in terms of the the pecking order for the guys around you. Because you know you know what offensive defensive lineman, you know I can see that. You know if you don't play in a game, not physically ready there. Um, you know a guy like Bryce F. He was never getting on the field anyway. Juice Scruggs played, uh, I think, the last drive against Maryland, so we're not counting him in this. But if you look at some of these other positions, safety, receiver, if you're not playing in any games, if they're not ready to use you in any games, you're probably going to start looking around. Well, and, and I think, you know, particularly with this group, because, you know, who was Isaiah Humphreys in that defensive back freshman class with just Trent Gordon? Uh, you know, again, Minor, minor's out of the picture. He's behind the scenes. He, he's going to classes. He's with them on a daily basis, but he's not in practice. He's not on the practice field you know, taking reps with these guys. So it, it, I, I'd imagine that can feel like a little bit of an isolated situation for Isaiah Humphreys to, to be the, you know, the one freshman defensive back who, who's not getting in there. But I hate to speculate that it, you know there are so many, uh, uh, such a wide range, as you well know, of, of causes and reasons why uh, players explore different avenues. And I shouldn't say players. Young men explore different collegiate avenues. Isaiah Humphreys will have Power 5 opportunities. He had plenty of them coming out of high school in Texas. Um, and we'll see what's next for him. But I, I do think you make a good point because – you know, the, the door is open, you know, and, and guys want to see that field. And, and trust me, the guys who got to play final stages of the Kent State game, they don't care that they were, you know, that the team was up 38 points or whatever it was. They just care that they were on the field playing in front of that Beaver Stadium crowd, you know, getting one game better in their college career. And so I think that it is an interesting thing. We'll see that that's the next phase of this redshirt rule, I guess. We've been learning uh, new little wrinkles about it. And maybe the next thing is kind of how it reverberates among the freshman class for for the guys who did not get involved. And I think you bring up a good point. Linemen are, are kind of their own separate entity. And we heard about how rare it was for PJ Mustafer to be on the football field for the extent he's been on it with Sean Spencer. Um, but, but, you know, I, I, I can buy into that, Sean. I can buy into the fact that not just here in Happy Valley, but across college football, uh, there could be some freshmen who are saying, you know, why did I not get on the field? This guy played four games. He he, he pushed it to the max. What was I not doing better? So that's something that I'm sure will be addressed in, in these end-of-season interviews that the coaches do with players. Uh, but, again, want to make it a point to know that we're not speculating that is the case with Isaiah Humphreys. It, it just it is a possibility now with the new rule. 
And I wanted to reiterate that last point. I'm talking in a national level, not just Penn yeah. State. Transfers happen. Transfers are going, you know, Penn, more more players from this team will transfer. It's not a, a national emergency or anything like that. It's just college football these days. But if you look on the whole, you know, I think quarterbacks are probably not in that mix. Offensive, defensive linemen probably not in that mix. Uh, you know, you can you can use linebackers on special teams. You can use defensive backs on special teams. You can use receivers, running backs. So I think those five position groups are, are the ones to look at when you're talking about that. And I don't think it's any uh, any wonder that some of those, you know, the running backs and receivers, corners, all those, they, you know, they want to play. There's, those are flamboyant guys. They want to get out there and, and prove that they can stick with everybody. That's been the process throughout the recruiting uh, the recruiting cycle. So that's not a real surprise. Uh, Penn State, 9-3. Uh, and three. We mentioned that uh, several times on this podcast. I'm sorry for that. But uh, New Year's Six, still a possibility. Probably going to be Orlando in the Citrus Bowl. Uh, um, probably going to be Orlando in the Citrus Bowl against Kentucky, from what we've what we've understood. But a few chips could still fall that way. Penn State could still sneak into the New Year Six. Yeah, it's it, it is tricky. I mean, I don't think people realize how complex these bowl tie-ins and agreements are across college football. Not just for these upper echelon of bowl games, but no, I think Penn State's in a spot right now where. Because of where Ohio State is situated in this playoff rankings behind Oklahoma, leads you to believe that if Oklahoma goes and beats a top 15 team in Texas and Ohio State goes and beats uh, a top 20 team in, in Northwestern, you don't expect Ohio State to leapfrog Oklahoma, which would mean Ohio State's headed to the Rose Bowl. Michigan would then presumably get in that large bid. It has the case to get that. And Penn State's then third in the pecking order for the Big Ten Conference. Uh, you know, obviously, if Northwestern wins, then say goodbye to any New Year's Six possibility because Ohio State and Michigan are going to be ahead of Penn State in line. Uh, but, you know, Peach Bowl, I think, it, it is still a possibility. You know, it's just a lot of things that could, that could go wrong for some of these teams up top. But I don't think anything that would send them, you know – dropping past Penn State. You know, even if Clemson were to lose to Pitt, I don't think that's good for Penn State. Uh, you know, Oklahoma loses to Texas. Well, then, you know, Texas is, is going to be just fine and jump. So I think Penn State's probably looking at uh, the Citrus Bowl, the Outback Bowl. Those are really good consolation prizes. I would say the best matchup that I can envision for Penn State uh, in terms of clout, in terms of potential, to me would be against Florida in the Peach Bowl because I think they match up well against the Florida Gators. The Florida Gators are ranked higher than they deserve, I think, in my opinion. I don't think I'm wrong there, but it would look pretty good to go up against number nine Florida in a New Year's Six Bowl. And again, I think that's a good matchup for Penn State, but I still think you're, you're probably on the outside looking in. The consolation prize, though, a trip to Florida, a, probably a New Year's game, and probably a ranked SEC team. So it's it, it, it kind of the cards are falling in the way that Penn State can make a, you know a nice punctuation mark to its season. Yeah, I mean the opportunity is still there. I think the 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 big goal here is ten wins. I don't think yeah. you know if you beat Kentucky, if you beat Florida, if you take a, on LSU, or or even if you know so something crazy happens, Northwestern wins this weekend and you fall to the Outback Bowl. I mean, which you know has been worse. You know, I've been on that train for a while now, but uh, no, I mean it's. Uh, it, I think the important thing is getting to ten wins. I think Kentucky's beatable. I think Florida's beatable. I agree with you that you know they they rank too high probably because there was nobody else that you could really put in that place because there's a lot of 
second tier teams in college football this year that we talked about, I think last week. But uh, yeah, I think the, the opportunity is there. I don't want to throw percentages into it, but you know, you're, you're looking at a healthy chunk to, to the citrus bowl. Peach Fiesta is kind of a, a slash type thing where it's probably going to be the peach, but you know, there's a, I guess that's a glimmer of hope for the Fiesta bowl and then the Outback bowl as well. But the important part, getting to 10 wins, not dropping below Tampa, which is, uh, you know, preferable to Orlando in this guy's eyes, but you know, I'll, I'll get off that train by our next episode. Preferable on this podcaster's eyes as well is the Tampa destination, <laughs> but, but it's all preferable when it's, uh, we're talking sixties and sunny versus what, uh, whatever happy Valley will be looking like in late December. Yeah. I'm looking out my window right now. Go, <laughs> go for some of that right yeah. now. Penn State put uh, two guys on the All-Big Ten first team, two guys on the All-Big Ten second team, and three guys on the All-Big Ten third team. Uh, Yitor Gross, Matos, Amani Oriwari leading the way, I believe, on the media first team for the uh, the All-Big Ten. Trace McSorley, Miles Sanders, second team guy. Sharif Miller on the defense. Ryan Bates and Connor McGovern on the third teams. Any gripes for you? I mean, I, I look over that. I, I struggle to see um, you know, a real outrage or anything like that, but I, I think probably Yitor Gross Matos being first team for one and third team for another. It's kind of, the imbalance is kind of there. No, yeah, I think that's what stood out. Aside from Gross Matos, um, you know, it was pretty much very lined up with the media selections and the uh, and the coaches selections on both sides of the ball. I think Sharif Miller was a media selection and the coaches did not put him on the third team. That was the one other one. But it's hard for me to imagine these Big Ten coaches truly found eight other defensive linemen in the Big Ten that they could definitively say they're better than Gross Matos at this point. Uh, this guy was just on a tear. And, and, and we've been saying, you know, late in the season, but it, it's really been like, you know, basically the entire Big Ten schedule since the bye week especially – He's just been a, a different kind of player. He's taken his game to a different level. And in turn, he has helped take this defense of Penn State's to a different level as well. So I would say that, that's tough for me to see. And, you know, just, just to, to put some stats out there, uh, it's pretty easy. Uh, Chase Winovich and Rashawn Gary, who were first-team guys out of Michigan on the defensive line, they combined for 19.5 total tackles for loss. Uh, you know, Etor had 20 on his own. I think Rashawn Gary, you know, he missed a big chunk of time. I know he's a game wrecker, but this felt more like a lifetime achievement slash you were the number one recruit coming out of uh, out of high school award to me. And, and I'm a big Rashawn Gary fan, but this year didn't seem like the year to, to put him there. And we're talking about just two of the eight guys that were ahead of Gross Matos. And then offensively, I think I probably have more of an issue with Pat Fryermuth. Uh, you know, I get it. You know, his, his, his name, people probably still trying to figure out how to pronounce it. He was the second highest ranked tight end that signed with Penn State in the 2018 recruiting class. You know, he wasn't a guy on, on the name, on everybody's lips that when we were talking about things in the preseason. But he emerged as a starter in, by the end of his first month on, on, on a college football field. And, and then he's out there catching seven touchdown passes in his first Big Ten schedule. No other tight end in the conference had more touchdown catches. The two guys who were ahead of him, um, when you look at the media and the coaches poll um, at, at tight end, you know those guys caught two touchdowns apiece. Uh, Zach Gentry caught two touchdowns for Michigan. Bryson Hopkins caught two touchdowns uh, for Purdue. They were listed ahead of him. I think that totally goes out the window next year. Pat Fryermuth is probably going to be maybe a second-team preseason guy. Maybe get some votes for a first-team first, first team next year in preseason. I just think his name recognition wasn't there, and that's ultimately very often the flaw with these kind of uh, preseason votes or postseason votes. 
Yeah, and I think it's a, it's a little bit of laziness that goes into it. But, you know, you look at the stats and usually the media lines up with the stats a little bit more. And I, I honestly was a little bit surprised by the coaches' picks. They're usually more in line with what I think when I see these guys play. But, uh, you know, it is what it is. But uh, the, I think the thing that gets me, uh, Wisconsin with five first-team uh, <laughs> first all-Big Ten selections on offense – and they average, what, 25 points a game, something like that. And I get it. It's all offensive linemen. It's Jonathan Taylor, who certainly deserves to be, you know, the, the running back of the year or whatever. But, man, when you take an offense as just sort of nondescript as Wisconsin, and, you know, in the past they've been nondescript, but they've been effective. This year that's not the case. I mean, this is a, this is a group that uh, underachieved. I don't think there's any doubt about it. Of course, they don't have very good quarterback play, as we as we saw a few weeks ago in Beaver Stadium. But, uh, man, for, for Wisconsin to land that many guys on the offensive first team, it's kind of crazy to me. They scored fewer than 20 points in four of their last seven games. That, that was kind of, I mean, look, they're going to have a lot of those offensive linemen playing in the NFL for many years ahead. Jonathan Taylor's way on, well on his way towards you know being an, an all-time great for that program. But you know, five offensive guys in the first team. I think you're right. It almost feels like folks look back at their preseason polls and said, "Who's still healthy from then?" Okay, let's put him on the postseason poll as well. And and, and he's a first team guy, so that tends to happen. But I will say one thing: I think caught some Penn State fans by surprise a little bit may have been Trace McSorley notching that second team honor on both sides. I think people here, you know, we have been looking at McSorley under a microscope, particularly since the injury in late October. And there have been some serious valleys, more valleys than peaks uh, for this offense during the duration of the season for the passing game. But I think what separates Trace is his rushing ability. More than 700 rushing yards this year, Sean. That's almost 300 more than he had last year. Now, the passing numbers, look, he's going to finish this year with 1,000 yards fewer through the air than he had in each of the last two years. He's going to finish this year with 10 fewer touchdowns than passes than he had the last couple of years. But there are not many quarterbacks in college football, much less the Big Ten, who can do what he does with his legs when he's right. You saw that against Maryland. That was the most recent reminder. But let's not forget what he did against Ohio State in the game of all games for this Penn State team uh, and setting a record for total yards. And, and I know I know the grand the grand body of work for 2018 fell short of a lot of expectations. But you know, Trace McSorley, third time in a row, second team, all Big Ten conference. An Ohio State quarterback finishes ahead of him again. Uh, but I'll tell you what, uh, he went out there and he earned it, and it may not have been pretty. But you look, you measure them against a lot of these Big Ten quarterbacks, and you still tr- take trace on most Saturdays. Absolutely. Uh, unfortunately, what I'm about to say, I don't, I don't like that I'm saying it. You said about Rayshon Gary sort of getting a lifetime achievement award. I think Trace McSorley got a little bit of the benefit of the doubt from the coaches. I know there's a lot of coaches in the Big Ten happy to see him go, but still, I, th- I think he benefited from that. So um, the 15 all Big Ten selection for Penn State, uh, stretching across offense, defense, and special teams. KJ Hamler got a, a nod for special teams as well. Um, but uh, 12 of those guys are coming back next year or have the ability to come back next year we'll put it that way so that i think that's a a good stretch for penn state to 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 sort of build on we talked about how 2019 can be good next year of course it's going to count on some of those guys coming back but at the same time there's a lot of talent that uh still to be mined right there and and by the way sean really quickly on the all big 10 front we've talked so much about you know signs of positive uh development on the offensive line uh james franklin's first three seasons at penn state 
They didn't produce a single first-team, second-team, or third-team offensive lineman. Ryan Bates got third-team last year. He did it again this year. So did Connor McGovern. So there you go, at least in the eyes of Big Ten coaches, Big Ten media. Uh, this offensive line is becoming more talented season in, season out. I don't think that's a big surprise, but I thought that was worth noting because they did have a, you know, a significant drought of not having one of the top 15 offensive linemen in, in, in Big Ten football. Starting to restock that offensive line cupboard. I guess probably not starting to, but continuing the process. Picked up their first 2020 commit last weekend before the game against Maryland. Grant Toutant, who's a guy that we talked about last week on the podcast from Michigan. Big kid. I mean, 6'6", plus 6'6 and a half, 290, 295. Probably a right tackle type. Could possibly play guard, I think, as well. Um, he moves fairly well for his size, test well at camp this year so they're excited about uh about getting this class started and Tutan's a pretty good player won a state title at De La Salle over the weekend or actually on Friday then made the trip on on Friday night despite the weather and uh this is a guy that Penn State targeted early a couple of offers one that sticks out among that is the Wisconsin offer and we know you know what kind of what kind of offensive lineman they put together I think uh it's a good start for Penn State in 2020 especially on the offensive line you've got potential to sort of have a I guess a special class there with some regional talent. Uh, you've got Michael Car- Carmody in Pennsylvania. You've got guys like Aaron Parks and Anton Harrison, the DMV. Zach Zinter was in for a visit down from uh, Massachusetts last weekend. Penn State offered uh, Ola Fashanu from uh, Gonzaga uh, in D.C. as well, so I meant to lump him in with Parks and Harrison. So you've got options, and I think if, if you look across the board, you've got bigger op- options. And I said this on our boards at Lions 24-7 the other day, that you're no longer sort of pigeonholing these guys as guards and centers. You're going out, you're recruiting a guy like Tutant, who, who's a 6'6 guy that could eventually be a guard if he needs to be. Anton Harrison's a 6'5 guy that could be a guard if he needs to be. I think Aaron Parks could be a guard as well. So you've got uh, tackles that are going to play guard, which is better than having guards that have the ability to play tackle. So Penn State taking a step in that right direction in 2020 to get that uh, offensive line class underway. Yeah, positional versatility is such a plus when you're evaluating offensive line. Lyman. Great example here is the two All-Big Ten guys we just talked about. McGovern played guard. He played center this year. He started at both spots. Ryan Bates played on both sides of the offensive line at tackle. So, uh, you know, that, that's just a nice example there. I think with Tutan, doesn't he kind of feel like a guy who's going to – you're going to look at this for, uh, this process for him and, and the offers that are going to come his way. And I get the sense we're going to look at it and saying Penn State was a little bit early to the party because considering his size, a lot of these offers came during the season. I get the sense that when teams evaluate uh, potential targets during the offseason, he's going to pop up more now because he is committed to a Power 5 program a team like Penn State, I think he's going to end up getting a nice bundle of offers moving forward. I don't think Penn State has anything to worry about. Uh, but I think, in, especially in terms of Big Ten programs, Big Ten contending programs, Penn State did a nice job pouncing on this, identifying him, getting that offer out, getting into campus. Um, and it, it may not be the the fireworks show that people thought maybe would be the first commitment of the 2020 recruiting class, which has ridiculous potential because of the talent in the area. But Grant Tutat, a really nice building block. It's interesting to see where he's going to go because you mentioned he's got legitimate size. He's got some some decent tape out there from his junior year. You know, of course, he's right there by Michigan. Michigan State's obviously there. Neither of them offered, um, but Wisconsin did. So I, I, it's just an interesting start to the class in the sense that you know he can he can really do a lot of things for you know the the potential of your future offensive lineman. This is a guy that could play probably three or four positions uh, moving forward, and they've got that that opportunity. Uh, 
with a few guys in that class, as we mentioned earlier. But yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's going to be fascinating to watch, uh, you know, how his recruitment goes. I think, uh, you know, if you look at what he does on film well, he gets out in front of some things and he, and he knocks some people around out in the open field, which is, is really kind of what you're looking for. He bends fairly well. He's got pretty good balance uh, when he gets out there. So, you know, I think that's probably an overlooked thing. Uh, you know, evaluating offensive linemen is something that, uh, you know, every staff does differently. And Penn State has really stuck to its evaluations. Uh, you talk about a guy like Kevin Pine up in uh, Massachusetts, a 2020 kid who's got offers from pretty much everywhere. Penn State decided decided not to offer him and you know his his tape this year does not look great and you see you know I, I think there were people questioning that back in the day when he's getting Notre Dame offers and Michigan offers and Clemson offers but you see some of that tape you can see some of the things that they're looking for and you know Tutant is a guy that they they identified early they decided to move forward with him and, and go with it and with this many guys still on the board it's I think it says a lot about where they what they think of Grant Tutant. There's a lot of six foot six, two hundred eighty pound. Well, a lot in in terms of recruiting, six six, two hundred eighty pound high school juniors out there. Many of them have college offers, but not many of them have that coordination or have proven that they can develop that coordination. That's the trickiest thing with recruiting offensive line. That guy may have the height, the size. You may think he can be a great athlete. Maybe he's got some experience on the basketball court, but until he actually proves that he can match coordination to that big frame. That is major, major bust risk. That's how you end up with a guy who's on your campus for three or four years. You can't figure out what his weight needs to be. Can't figure out what you're missing to, to, to just take him to another level. And then all of a sudden he transfers out. You know, I think this is the kind of guy, Grant Tutant, who has already figured out how to be a fluid athlete with this physical, uh, you know, with, with, with the weight, with the height. Because these guys aren't born six foot six, two eighty. Some of these guys go through big time growth spurts, eighth grade, ninth grade, and all of a sudden they're a different person physically. Uh, this guy's got it kind of put together in that regard, and I think that's important when you evaluate young offensive line talent. And that's what I kind of like about Mike Carmody um, out in Western Pennsylvania. He's a basketball player. He's a good basketball player. I mean, you can you can go out there as a six foot six guy that's three hundred pounds and and take up space in the lane and grab some rebounds and things. But you know, when you're drop step dunking, when you're you know going around people in the post and things like that, I think that says a little bit more about your footwork. Says a little bit more about your balance and body control and coordination. And and when you put on the the offensive line tape, and I've talked to some some college offensive line coaches about this, is when you put on the offensive line tape you're not necessarily looking for pancakes you're not necessarily looking for for a guy picking a guy up and and tossing him or anything like that you're looking for the little things where you know a guy gets out into space and gets chipped and knocked off balance if he can you know stay on his feet keep himself up and finish his block or, or something like that I think that's uh that's pretty much what you're looking for in terms of value rather than just falling on a defensive end that's 200 pounds yeah. so uh, yeah um, yeah I think yeah, that and, 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 sorry Sean go ahead no and and I look at a guy like Ja'Kai Moore, um, who is uh, his his sort of his ratings are all over the place. When you look at uh, when you look at where we have him as a four star in twenty four seven sports, he's a three star composite guy, but he's a basketball guy. He can move around, he can do some really good things, and you know he's an athlete. And uh, once they grow into that body, and you know he's six 
five and a half, six, six, 300 pounds or 290 pounds. Once they grow into that body and they can com- complete that step to, to, to transitioning that coordination from, you know, where they were as an athlete to where they are as an offensive lineman. I think that says good things about the future. That's one of the reasons I love Rasheed Walker. I mean, this is a guy yeah. that, that was in that same boat. That's a, that same size. And he's got the, you know, an elite kick set and just gets, gets out there and he's going to be a really good pass blocker at Penn state. I mean, that, that, that's very different than some of the guys that is, even Penn state's brought in a last couple of years Rasheed Walker Juice Scruggs I think both those guys if they wanted to they would have found a way to play power five football on the defensive line if that's where their heart was they're those kind of athletes they showed that at the high school level standout defensive players Uh, that's a big sign I think always uh, of of how far an offensive lineman can go can he do it on both sides of the ball in high school and then and I think you know Nana Sedu although he's not going to be with the program on the football field this is a guy who was an all-conference tight end uh, early in his career in high school in Virginia at North Stafford High School and then put on a bunch of weight became this kind of prototypical high ceiling tackle prospect and you know Rasheed Walker's not far off from that Um, so I'm with you I think they got a great makeup there for what they're looking for the guys are actually bringing in and you talked about you know the pancakes and sometimes that's a warning sign when you're evaluating a prospect an offensive lineman if it's just a bunch of him getting that initial punch and knocking guys over and they just land plopping on top of them you know where's the technique uh, wh- where's your footwork i think i've seen a lot of linemen who that you know they'll put 10 straight plays of that and you're like all right well wh- where are the nuances of what you do as an offensive lineman and the people who fall in love with pancakes like i said you end up with some projects and uh, those are those don't always pan out i would say the the proverbial projects in college football on the offensive line it's a 50-50 proposition at best and and I think the industry has come a long way in terms of ranking these guys. You look back, I mean, 10 years ago, and it's all those pancake guys. I mean, the, the, the high-level guys are, you know, those pancake guys that go out and fall on top of uh, the guys that are 100 pounds, 50 pounds less than them. Now I think they're starting to look a little bit more. And the industry as a whole has really evolved in the last probably six or seven years um, to, to look for more things, probably look for more things that college coaches are looking for than just, you know, thrown on the huddle and seeing a guy that's, that dominates his competition. So um, I, th- I just I, I find that to be more interesting and I find that to be more accurate than we've seen, uh, you know, 10, 10 years ago. Everybody brings up the, you know, Paul Puzzlesny was a three-star. Sean Lee was a three-star. I mean, that's irrelevant information. Uh, to, I mean, that's what, 15 years ago now? Um, Context, so, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's it, it's really interesting to see how far, and I don't mean to, to, to show for the recruiting services, but just they do such a better job right now than they used to. And by the way, tackle, look at the guys they're going up against on a weekly basis. You've got a guy like Itor Grossmatos, 4-5-2 in the 40-yard dash with his height, with his size. You've got Jason Oway running a sub-4-5 40-yard dash. These are the elite defensive ends across the country. Zach Harrison is a track star, and he's a, def- he's a five-star defensive end. So you better be ready to counter that with an offensive tackle capable of matching up with that athleticism and lateral movement. Before I use the Zach Harrison thing to get into the next point, also, you're going to want some physicality in there. You're going to want some some aggressiveness. We just saw Sterling Jenkins wrap up his career at Penn State. He was obviously a project. He did a lot of things that you look for. He had the balance, the athleticism, the bend, and all that kind of stuff. Just did not have the killer instinct. So, you know, it's not an easy thing to find. I mean, you've got guys that, that, that wash out because of that. You've got guys that wash out because they're not athletic enough and they can't stick. And then, you know, guys just don't have the skill. But uh, it's, a, it's really a crap 
crapshoot. It's why you want to bring in four or five offensive linemen every year, because if you hit on two or three of those in every year, I think you'll be okay. So, uh, but back into the Harrison segue, he is also, you know, I think a bit of a project, you know, he's the, as a football player, not quite there yet, but he's a track star. He's a guy that can really do a lot of uh, physical things that have coaches salivating, have, uh, you know, I think uh, scouts have already taken notice of his makeup and everything like that. So um, phenomenal prospect, not sure where he's going to end up in terms of, uh, you know, three years from now, if he's an all big 10 guy, or if he's, you know, just another guy, it's, it's really hard to say, but he's got the, the opportunity to be a, a number one overall pick. He was Penn state's top priority in terms of going out on the road this week. James Franklin decided to use his in-home visit. I think, um, I don't think it's any secret that, that Michigan probably has some momentum with him right now. Ohio State's always going to be in there. Penn State, I think, is a, a third team kind of fighting for that. And it was Penn State's opportunity to just sort of uh, get in there and make an impression before Michigan had a chance to. Ohio State, obviously, is working on the Big Ten title game, so they're not out visiting guys right now. So that's a calculated risk going in there this early. But you want to get on his mind. You want to try and stick on his mind because, you know, we're three weeks from signing day. Um, you know, the Ohio State and Michigan are going to jockey for that last uh, thing. But if they feel that he's going to decide before then, it's, uh, it's worth shooting your shot right now. Exactly. And and it's been well established that Zach Harrison, uh, his, supporting, his support system, they are fans of James Franklin. They're a fan of his message. They're a fan of their staff. Uh, but, you know, let's face it, the way this recruitment has transpired, you had a delayed commitment announcement, a lot of a lot of speculation, you know, and and good speculation from our from our great 24-7 sports network that this thing is trending in the, in the direction of Michigan, which has got to be stunning to Ohio State fans who are in his neighborhood. Uh, but, yeah, it's... It clearly tells you that this team still feels like they had a chance. It was time to make this sales pitch. It was it was time to get you know front and center with Zach Harrison. And get on get there Monday. Make him know he's a priority. I think he already is aware of that. Uh, but you know to see him them check him off the list you know at the start of this contact period uh, is huge. And, and for our listeners, the contact period Sunday it, it began. It'll go through December fifteenth. It permits these off campus meetings uh, between the coaches and, and between these these high school seniors who are all over the country trying to make their minds up. Um, so that, that that's that's the motivation. It's not just Penn State says, oh, we can do this any week. We happen to be off. It, it, it coincides with the end of the regular season. So. I guess that's kind of the silver lining of not being in the Big Ten Championship this week. Get a little bit of a head start on kind of getting things in a row as the early signing period nears. You're always the optimist. Uh, <laughs> speaking of Harrison, it's fascinating where he's going to end up. And and right now it looks like the momentum's with Michigan. But all of a sudden, you know, Ohio State goes out and smacks Michigan. Um, you know, that could throw a wrench into things. And, you know, if, if he waits long enough, and Penn State thought they had a good in-home visit with him the other day, if he waits long enough, you know, maybe he falls to you. I don't know that that's going to happen. But, you know, the, the possibility always is always there. Penn State thinks that they're in it enough to send James Franklin for his first stop there. Frank from there went to West Virginia. Um, you got a couple of targets. You know, Brenton Strange is there as a tight end commit, but you've got Darnell Wright and Zach Williamson there. Penn State did not use their in home for Darnell Wright, trying to get, they're just trying to get him on campus for an official right now. Um, 
And I think that uh, West Virginia has suddenly turned into a spot where they're looking. Zach Williamson is committed to Louisville. They don't have a coach right now, so perhaps now the time is to strike while the iron is hot, try and get in there. He visited for a game in November, I believe, or early November or late October. Um, So there's certainly some sort of interest there. So if you're looking to fill out your offensive line class, of course you want Ja'Kai Moore. I think he's probably your top guy right now. Trevor Keegan's still out there as well, going to take an official visit in December. But Zach Williamson's a guy that you can get on campus while he's trying to figure out what's going to happen at Louisville. Yeah, Kentucky offered Williamson a couple of days ago as well. So clearly a guy that I think could see some some extra generate a buzz here as Louisville searches for their new leader. Um, and, and going off of West Virginia, I had a chance earlier this week to speak with Brenton Strange, uh, who's been committed to Penn State now for, for going on almost two months. Um, you know, Big-time tight end prospect there in Parkersburg, a guy who earned his offer on campus in July. Uh, he, he said you know, he was expecting you – know, not just Tyler Bowen, but a really strong group. James Franklin, the Penn State staff, obviously they're making the rounds of West Virginia. They're going to check in on this committed player. And Brenton Strange, to follow up real quick, he said he will be uh, you know, gunning for some kind of early role as a freshman. I think that we're going to hear that from every single guy who's about to sign with Penn State. But he said he doesn't want to discount himself out of the tight end equation in 2019. So he'll get to campus in January and do everything in his power uh, to become part of that mix, as we said, it's an interesting group. You got three veterans, uh, a bunch, you know. Then you got the the, the younger guys and Fryermuth and Zach Koontz, and you're going to add uh, Brent Strange into that mix. But he had a great, great senior 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 season. Sean, eleven touchdown catches, uh, almost a thousand receiving yards, and this is a guy who at six foot five is a, is a dynamic receiving threat. Who I think as he adds more weight to his frame, uh, that tight end group gets even more healthy. Franklin from there and Franklin's on the, the university plane at this point all the other coaches got a traveling commercial as we pointed out during the bye week but uh, he's he went down to North Carolina to see Emory Simmons and Emory Simmons is a guy that we really don't talk about too much in the in the makeup of this class he's got legit speed he's got better size than I think people realize and he's still playing for a championship down in North Carolina so um, it, I just we'll stop and talk about Emory Simmons real quick this is a guy that came up he flipped from Indiana to North Carolina flipped from North Carolina to Penn State haven't heard of anything that would make him you know go back to North Carolina with Mac Brown coming in there I'm not sure that that's a situation that he, he really wants to step into but he's coming up for his official visit next weekend he's set to be on campus in January as well but just a really intriguing uh, guy because you look at him you look at John Dunmore and this receiver class is there's a ton of talent I mean there's uh, probably a little bit of, a, of an edge of rawness in there but still this is these two really talented guys I still feel like this Emory Simmons commitment gets a little kind of overlooked because there was a lot of hype for the Lash Bash, which obviously you and I are partially responsible for creating. Uh, but, you know, he wasn't one of those necessarily those those top five names on the billboard of Lash Bash where you're circling and saying, could this be the guy who pulls the trigger? Well, he was the guy uh, that weekend, and, and he went into his season. I remember, you know, back in August, he started a season with almost 200 receiving yards and two touchdowns in the first game. Uh, he's been a beast. He's, he's at 1,200 receiving yards, 18 touchdowns. You mentioned this is a kid who's been a part of a, of a, of a run toward a state championship potentially. Uh, so he's had a, he's thrived here in, in 2018. And uh, the receiver group, you know, him, Dunmore, it's going to be interesting because you know, we, we've talked about will they be able to bring in a, a third high-caliber prospect of that position a little more on that in a moment um but i think you really like where you're at with these two guys and 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 because he was kind of overlooked at the time of his commitment because his previous commitments to north carolina and indiana weren't really ones that that you know stole a bunch of headlines across college football i think he tends to go under the radar 
um, as we approached you know, the early signing period. Ran a couple of 4-4s at opening events. We got invited to the opening finals, did well down there. Uh, from from there, uh, Franklin hopped on a plane, went to see Salim Wormley in, De- in uh, De- Delaware. Um, he'll be on campus for his official visit next weekend as well. And you've got other guys. You've got uh, assistants all around the country. Uh, Tim Banks went out to see Noah Pola Gates in Arizona. Sean Spencer and, and Brent Pry were in New York to see Adisa Isaac, Jared Harrison Hunt. Just got a text from Mark Anthony Richards that Penn State's down there seeing him right now. So um, yeah, Penn State all over the place right now. Important visits. You you wrote earlier this week about Noah Kane. Obviously, Penn State, uh, you know, a big player in that recruitment, Mark Anthony Richards. And while they're seeing Anthony Richards, or excuse me, Mark Anthony Richards, they're going to jump in there and see John Dunmore, who has visited Miami a couple of times, uh, you know, despite being committed to Penn State. So a lot of work to be done. You're leaning a lot on, on guys like uh, Jay Wan Sider. You're leaning a lot on some of your top recruiters and uh it's just a really active time even though you know you're probably not filling up the headlines it's a really active time an important time ahead of that official visit next weekend and then uh signing day later this month and you know Jaywan Sider with his personality, the way he is in the recruiting trail, the way he has been for several years. It, it, on the Florida recruiting trail in particular, he was probably licking his chops to hit the road here. Uh, you know, may have been nice to, to spend a little bit of downtime with his family, I'm sure. But in terms of his professional uh, duties, I think this is something that he really enjoys. Noah Kane, there's no question about it. Kane doesn't make that trip up to campus in April. Uh, w- without Sider being involved here. Sider was the one who presented that scholarship offer to him on behalf of Penn State back in the winter. And then John Dunmore, formerly committed to him at Florida. Mark Anthony Richards, as you said, uh, right there. And someone else to add, uh, Cornelius Johnson gets a visit as well uh, earlier this week on Monday uh, from receivers coach David Corley. Johnson uh, you know, just recently wrapped up his career up in Connecticut at the Brunswick School. Uh, Stanford is considered the team to beat in this race. Uh, he has not been to campus since he got that offer last February, uh, but that's going to change next week. And, and there's your segue. That's great. I appreciate that. Um, <laughs> before we get into that, the contact period, you mentioned the rules a little bit. When you're talking 2019 kids right now, you can see the player, you can go to their school, you're going to go to their house, see their parents and all that kind of stuff. Um, you're going to uh, get to the school of the 2020 kids. You're not supposed to see them. You're not You're not going in-house with those You know, uh, 2020 kids. David Corley went and saw Julian Fleming. Penn State's been all around the DMV checking out places like DeMatha, St. John's, and St. Francis and uh, places with a ton of 2020 underclass talent, things like that. But uh, yeah, it's a very it's a very different setup, and you're just trying to position yourself in the best spot possible for this stretch run. Uh, a guy they're not visiting, David Bell. I mean, we've talked a lot about David Bell. He's a phenomenal player. Um, but with with Brian or excuse me, Jeff Brom. Sorry, I got my Brahms all mixed up. With uh, Jeff Brom staying at Purdue, it's uh, it's a tough sledding. I think uh, I put my crystal ball in for David Bell to go to Purdue earlier this week. Um, that's a tough one, but. Uh, with with Brom returning in the Big Ten West to Purdue sort of changes a couple of things, especially when you're talking about getting down the stretch for some of these top targets. Yeah, uh, and I think, you know, it certainly does seem pretty good right now for Purdue, and, and what a win for that program to be able to keep him there uh, and, and Brom. But, yeah, David Bell is a guy that felt like Penn State was in a better position midway through the season than they are at the end of the season. I don't think that's any secret. But, you know, Jalen Curry is a guy we've talked about out of the Houston, Texas area, a 
former Florida State commit. Uh, he made the trip up uh, back in September for his official visit with Penn State. Uh, Cornelius Johnson, who I Dutch ta- just touched on, um, he's a guy who, who seems like trending towards the Pac-12 with Stanford, but Corley's there this week. He says he thinks the Penn State staff may be there again next week before he, he makes his official visit. So He's going to be one of those, uh, you know, few guys next weekend who's on campus for what is shaping up to be the premier official visit weekend at Penn State uh, before these guys sign their letters of intent. Yeah, and, and all the commits are that, that haven't taken their official visits unless they're still playing. Uh, guys like Hakeem Beeman are still playing. I think Emory Simmons is still playing as well. Um, and maybe Michael Johnson. I, I didn't check his stats this week. But uh, it's uh, it's going to be a big weekend for Penn State at December 7th weekend. Of course, uh, Cornelius Johnson's coming up. Jared Harrison Hunt's going to be for his official visit. Trevor Keegan told Steve Wiltfong this week that he's coming in for that weekend. Ja'Kai Moore has that visit planned, and Penn State's the, the leader on the crystal ball for him. So t- if you're looking to sort of set the tone for the rest of the, uh, I guess, the signing period, which uh, we're, we're talking mid-December here, um, but the first signing period, I mean, that's a huge, huge weekend for Penn State. Last year, I remember they had that similar weekend. It may have been a little bit later in December, but it was like all hands on deck, commits get here. You know, that peer recruiting was in full effect. It was, you know, very similar to what I think we'll see that weekend. You had, I think, two main uncommitted guys on campus then, Micah Parsons, who I think at that point was very much intertwined with a lot of those guys in that class. And you had Tyreek Smith. And I remember the chatter was Tyreek Smith leaving that official visit was very positive about where Penn State stood. Obviously, he ends up with Ohio State. But uh, these are the kind of visits where you get around these guys in a room, around the dinner table. Their parents are together communicating. This can seal the deal with some guys. It can. Uh, I'm going to dispute you on Tyreek Smith. He kind of, I think, uh, it was it was funny. I was talking to somebody uh, about another player, and he said he he self sabotaged his visit because uh, and 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 I was like talking about and Tyreek Smith was a mutual recruit that I've that we talked about another mm-hmm. analyst and he said oh yeah kind of like Tyreek Smith did his Penn State visit and I was like oh okay um so oh, that's I an interesting nugget it, it it certainly is and you know as you know and we reported Tyreek Smith was committed to Penn State for four months before that visit um but uh it's uh it's one of those things where you, you never hear somebody say that they had a bad visit all the you know all the initial reviews are usually pretty good but once the death settles you kind of see where things go from that uh, from that direction. Tyreek Smith was obviously one that went in the opposite direction that we expected, but uh, Penn State still settled uh, settled well. I think that we were talking before the show, they signed 23 kids in that class. They had 22 sign on signing day in December, and then of course Rashid Walker. At the, Walker at was the, up uh, that weekend as well. He's the other guy who was there on campus. Yep. Nailed it. Nailed it. Um, but uh, it, it, I think it's going to be when you're talking about Penn State's recruiting, it's going to be a lot of guys signing on December and then maybe a couple of uh, guys that slip through the cracks or maybe a one or two big fish that are carryover into January. So I, I don't see that changing this year. I see that uh, sort of being the the, um, the the formula for Penn State moving forward. And maybe that's the next window where you'll see not a bunch of new offers, but a few select offers at select positions that maybe you didn't address in December that you want to take care of. Uh, you know, I'm talking three, four offers maybe. It's become a new frenzy of offers there because not everybody gets their prizes in December, and, and this whole college football recruiting calendar is a lot different and, than it used to be. And it, honestly, you know, you don't have to sign in December, and it's become kind of a smart thing to do. If you're sort of teetering on the edge of being a, you know, a big-time prospect, there are schools that are going to reset their recruiting board 
boards on January 1st and, and see where they stand. You saw a lot of, uh, for lack of a better term, mediocre players getting pretty good offers in January last year and, and parlaying that into a bigger school or whatnot. Um, so uh, it's it's going to be fascinating to see what direction that comes. Uh, Smith Vilbert, a guy from Jersey who is not a mediocre player. He's, he's, he's a good project. Uh, you know, Obviously, he's a basketball guy. We've talked about him before. But if he doesn't plan on signing in December, he may have some more options in, in January and February. And, and who knows what his recruitment is going to look like then. So, you know, honestly, I I can see making a strong case for not signing in December because of this, but you know you've got that double-edged sword where some of your options may go away if you don't sign in December. It de- and it depends on the personality. It, you know, if you're somebody who's not enrolling early and you you have that ability to to take the decision process into January into early February, it just depends if you want to stomach that. You know, Jason Oway last year was someone who thought about doing that, and, and he just pulled the trigger on Penn State. I think he's somebody who was getting so many texts, so many calls from players from from you know just constant uh you know bombardment about where you're going to college from media members so i think that is kind of a motivating factor in a lot of these cases for families for prospects to say you know what let's put it to bed in december let me be done with this let me try to resume some kind of sense of normalcy as a high school student but i think what you don't want to do is rush into signing anything that is the obvious worst mistake you can make but i think it sets up where like a guy like zach Zach harrison who has proven to us that he does not want the publicity he does not want to get blown up constantly about his recruitment he's somebody who i think it makes sense to whether you're decided or not wait until that first day of the signing period sign commit in the same one fell swoop and move on with your life and i again it just comes down to so what the personality of these kids is for, for this whole new situation. Yeah, and, and Zach Harrison's a guy that's not really bought into the process. Uh, Darnell Wright in West Virginia could, could care, couldn't care less about the process. Um, so it's just, it, it depends on the personality of the guy, and you know we'll see what comes of that. Uh, uh, Mark Anthony Richards is, is a guy that's not going to sign until February. We'll see what happens with his uh, recruitment. Uh, uh, as we mentioned, Penn State down there today, it's Thursday as we record. So it's just going to be fascinating to see how this, uh, this sort of plays out i think it's going to be like i said penn state's going to sign a good chunk of its players and i'm talking probably 90 percent of its players and uh, in, in december and then we'll see what happens when uh, when it gets to february but i think penn state a little bit more flexible with the scholarship offers that they do have uh 17 commits right now you could see them probably getting to signing day with 20 or 21 guys and and then going from there and you know they've, they've got some scholarships to play with there but uh we'll talk about that more moving forward this is a, a long episode for us but uh, we're playing we, catch up we're playing catch up and we're going to switch formats here with the season over we're going to try and go once a week um you know christmas is going to throw a wrench into things eventually uh, we'll try to be back early next week to talk about the the bowl announcement uh to talk about some some recruiting stuff as well so um but i think that's it you got anything else who, who you got winning the big 10 uh, title game this week yeah i mean i think it'd be interesting to see northwestern throw a wrench in everything but I, i'm gonna go ohio state i'm, I'm i think oklahoma is gonna be texas too so i think ohio state ends up being that team left on the doorstep that's kind of become the the big 10 tradition is uh, uh some team gets left in that fifth spot i think it happens again this year and, and then i'll just, i'm focused on sunday sean where, where are we going to spend some time in the sun watch penn state play its 13th game i think that that's going to be something i'm really focused in on and i, and I want to see who they're playing because brands mean a lot in these bowls and i think for fans especially they they want to play a recognizable brand something tells me that folks would be a little bit more jazzed up if they're going up against a florida 
or an LSU or, you know, an old friend in Joe Moorhead with Mississippi State than they would against Kentucky. Even though the Wildcats have had a great season, the brand's just not there. I think it would be just a little bit more of a different level if, if you see them taking on one of those other three SEC programs. I think those are the four teams you look at as potential opponents in a bowl based on everything we've kind of gathered at this point. Waiting for Sunday. I thought you were going to say waiting for Monday for that epic uh, Redskins-Eagles Monday night game that I'm sure everybody can't I'm wait I'm never for. waiting for a Redskins game. <laughs> <laughs> Trust me. I've been a Redskins fan all my life. I'm never waiting for one either. Um, but no, it's uh, it, it's been a good episode. We thank you for joining us on the Lions 24-7 podcast. Again, check us out iTunes, Spotify, wherever you may be. Check us out on Lions247.com. We've got a bunch of stuff on the site right now. Tracking coaches all over the place, far beyond what we've covered on the podcast and, and tracking interesting storylines as as that uh, December 19th signing day nears. I'm Sean Fitz. That's Tyler Donahue. Thanks for joining us, and we will see you next week. Gun down. Gun down. Gun down. Gun down. Gun down.